I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, skags. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in, it feels just like this. It feels just like unspecified felines we are back for yet another episode of the debrief i am your host brianna joy gray and this week on our public thursday episode i spoke to an investigative reporter who has done one of the only deep dives about what went uh what happened with all the money collected by black lives matter in general but in particular during 2020 according to a really remarkable expose that he wrote in New York Magazine uh, about a week ago, uh, Black Lives Matter collected about $90 million in 2020 alone, $60 million of, million of which is still largely unaccountable, uh, unaccounted for. rather. And we had an interesting conversation about the extent to which one can infer any malfeasance from that, whether it's just mismanagement, and whether or not some of the choices made by Black Lives Matter organization leadership in terms of taking corporate gigs, and most notably in his article he pointed to, um, the choice to back a collaboration with UGG to do an electric slide for freedom <laughs> instead of backing an anti-white uh, supremacist uh, counter-protest in, in California. So I know a lot of you had thoughts and feelings on the interwebs about this one. I see the queue as always, is queuing. So without further ado, let's start taking some calls. Kusha, welcome back. What's on your mind? Thank you very much for having me this evening, Brianna. It's a of pleasure. Course. To talk. Kusha, would it be a call-in without you? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so one thing I would like to begin with is uh, not necessarily the organization Black Lives Matter, but a lot of what's connected with Black Lives Matter, uh, specifically that phrase and what we hear um, returned as a response, often exploited through the right wing in the United States and so on, and sometimes by people of good faith, the all lives matter phrase. Uh, what I want to say by analyzing that is, I think there's a very strong parallel. I want to make a parallel between how we see that phrase used domestically in the United States and the parallel we see internationally, globally, when it comes to uh, a self-described clan of journalists and pundits with respect to calling themselves anti-imperialists when it comes to saying that human rights violations are used to justify interventions and atrocities by the U.S. and its allied governments through interventions, wars, occupation, and so on. I think there's a very strong parallel here. And if it's all right, I'd really like to lay it out and hear your commentary on it. So... Okay, Kusha, I just want you to keep in mind, you know, I, I just want you to keep in mind that you're the first person that had a long queue. So I just want to make sure whatever you say is really to the point and kind of in the form of a question and not just exposition. Are we on the sure. same page with that? Sure, sure. 
Sure. Okay, so it's 9.35. I'm going to have to start playing some out music if, if this exposition goes longer than, than 9.37. All right? Okay, that, that's fair. Yeah, okay. That, thank you for giving me those boundaries. I can definitely work within those. Okay. Uh, okay. So what, what I'd like you to comment on, if that's all right, is when Ahmad Arbery's father, Marcus Arbery, spoke following the guilty verdict about his son being lynched by white supremacists, he said, quote, Black kids' lives don't matter. For, all, for real, all life matters, not just black children. We don't want to see nobody go through this, end quote. And it seems to me very evidently that he was speaking very much from the heart. And then Margaret Kimberly, uh, executive editor and senior columnist at the Black Agenda Report, said that in regards, sorry, those are my dogs, in regards to his comments, um, it, it was very much like backtracking is what he did. Uh, by making those statements and that, yes, that he did call lynching was good, but it was backtracking. And I'd really like to know your take on this matter of how important it is to try to ultimately make the connection, whatever group is being, um, uh, is, is, in, is suffering in the United States or around the world, whether that's black people, whether that's Mexican American immigrants or what have you, um, immigrants from Iran, um, whatever group is suffering I think ultimately the, one of the best things we can do, which I know you do very well, is to try to make that human connection ultimately like um, Jacob Blake's sister did, that ultimately Jacob Blake is a human is what she, uh, she said. I'd really like to know your, um, your thoughts on that into how much that should be incorporated in the analysis. Uh, because I know you agree with the universal element, and I'd really love to hear you, your thoughts. Well, I mean, this Emily. is a part – it reminds me of the conversation we've been having for the last week or so about the Whoopi Goldberg stuff. Right. There are some people who perceive her desire to expand the conversation, to, to characterize the Holocaust as an example of man's inhumanity against man, as a kind of all lives matter moment that erases the particularity of the oppression of Jewish people in particular. And in doing so, in erasing that particularity, you know, the same it's the same thing that black people complain about with all lives matter. You are. Uh, liable not to be prepared to resist the very specific particularized harms that are going to befall certain kinds of groups if you're overgeneralized and not looking at the ways in which specific people are persecuted, right? And you're just flattening the whole thing. At the same time, one could understand that in the same way that, um, you know, the, the anecdote that you described, the effort was to connect with other people and say, hey, you know, my loved one was killed. Can't you relate? All lives matter, right? So, you know, it could be your loved one. Let's share in responsibility and making sure things like this don't happen anymore. And that it's appealed to our connectedness and this universality. And whether you see it one way or the other has to do with whether or not you perceive someone to be acting in good faith. Many people would assume that a person who's loved one has been the victim of police violence is acting in good faith when they say all lives matter and people are divided on whether or not they perceive Whoopi Goldberg as someone who was acting in good faith, even if she was mistaken and making a kind of all lives matter statement about the Holocaust. It's, it's difficult because, you know, I'm not naive to the reality that, I mean, some people think that all lives matter would have been a better political statement for exactly that reason. Some people argue that black lives matter is the better statement because when people start to argue with it, it kind of reveals the extent to which they are uncomfortable in sitting in the fact, in the statement, that of course Black Lives Matter too, if all all lives matter. Some people argue that the slogan should have been Black Lives Matter too. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, I think all of it has to do with your subjective 
understanding of what the interlocutor's faith level is, good or bad. And I think the the fundamental issues are that we do live in a divided society where people are liable to misunderstand each other. And it has really nothing to do with the slogan, which is why I hate all of these conversations about sloganeering. Because you and I and everybody here understands that if we were in a good faith conversation with someone who said all lives matter, we might be like, mm, you know, just friend to friend. This is how that's going to be perceived more broadly. And maybe you should avoid that particular phrase. But we would have the capacity to understand that as a statement made in good faith. Thank you very much, Brianna, for your analysis. It was a very rich one. And I appreciate you keeping me aware of uh, the topics <laughs> you wanted me to respond to. Of course, no, please feel free to do that for me because I want to be mindful of everyone else's time as well. And if you want to limit my exposition time, please do. Thank I you appreciate you, Kusha. I th- thank you for, for helping me help the rest of the queue, especially no. since you're first up today. It's very sensible. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Jacob, you're up next. What's on your mind? Hey, Bria. Good evening. I would say that I'm generally not someone who shares most of your political persuasions, but I've always enjoyed listening to your podcast as well as your other mainstream media appearances. Well, I think you, you may- I think what, you are your political, what are your political proclivities? Uh, I would say that I tend to lean more center-right to libertarian. Mm-hmm. Not quite like very right-wing, but not quite fully on libertarian either. Okay. I think most libertarian ideas are fantastic in a perfect world, but because we don't live in a perfect world, most of those ideas would never actually work in reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a degree of insight that sometimes I wish I heard more from some of my libertarian friends. So I appreciate that. If we lived in a perfect world, yes, a yes. lot of those ideas would. And would rock. I, would, I would honestly mm-hmm. say the same thing about a lot of left wing ideas. I, mean, I think a lot of the ideas I hear from the left would be incredible if we lived in a perfect world. But just because of the reality of the world we live in, sometimes things that, that won't work the way you might be able to think they should. But where, uh, does that, where does that lead you in terms of how you think about solutions for the world's problems? Uh, to being incredibly confused because mm-hmm. on the one hand, I really don't like the idea of government-backed health care, but at the same time, the current system that we have in the US, in the United States is a total clusterfuck, mm-hmm. and private health insurance isn't really helping anybody on a broad scale. But at the same time, I look at other countries that have government health care, and I see all the problems there, and I don't like that solution either. So I believe in health care for all as a concept and an idea that we should strive for and implement yesterday. But I just don't know how to do that, because I don't like the idea of a government-run health care system. But I'm also not liking the current system we have now. Well, what do you think about systems like those implemented in Canada or the UK or any other number of, you know, European countries. Do you have specific qualms with those, those strategies? Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, I think that while it does remove a lot of the inefficiencies, the reality is I think that there does become, there, there does become some level of rationing care and, I don't even mean to go into the whole Sarah Palin death panel type Michigas, <laughs> but like, I do think there is some level of rationing, rationing care and that there isn't necessarily as wide access to care as some people may make you want to believe. And you do sort of find that in those countries, you still 
still have very robust private health systems, not only for the rich, but even the moderately affluent or upper income who are relying on those systems because the, the public systems just don't seem to be working for a lot of folks. And I will say I also do have family who live in countries with socialized health care who have also had some extremely negative experiences with those systems. Do you have people, do you have family in the States who've had negative experiences with our private health care system? Oh, I don't know anyone who has that. <laughs> right. So if and the I, question, if the, if the issue is that even if I accept the premise of, you know, rationed care in some instances and the premise that it's not, um, at, the access isn't as um, easy as some Americans might perceive it to be, if it's easier and more people slash everybody has access to a standard of care that they don't have here. And additionally, there is a supplementary private system that people with means can draw upon to even augment that care. That sounds like kind of a boon to me. Yep. Yeah. And so the thing about that is that like the one thing that like everybody on the right likes to forget in the healthcare discussion is mm-hmm. just how much healthcare is actually funded by the government. Mm-hmm. Between the folks who are relying on Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. veterans veterans benefits, and then you anybody who has health insurance through a private employer, your private employer is getting a tax break for the portion of your health insurance mm-hmm. premiums that your employer pays. Mm-hmm. So many of my friends on the right like to forget the fact that I don't know the exact numbers. I don't want to say it's 50% and then have somebody call me out. But Mm -hmm. a very large percentage of healthcare expenditures in this country are already being footed by the government. Mm -hmm. And then we pay twice as much as most other similarly situated countries, which is how you get to these, you know, studies like that. um, What was it? The Mercator study think tank, uh, a conservative think tank that showed that we'd actually save money if we actually did implement Medicare for all. Yeah. And then, of course, there's also all the other efficiencies that come with your health care right. being costs. portable yeah. and yeah. not being you know stuck with your employer. But there's also lots of things that we could do to our current system without really changing the status quo that nobody wants to do. Prescription like, drug price negotiations. And, yes. Like, yeah. it, it absolutely boggles my mind. And, of course, that was a wonderful Republican proposal, I want mm. to say, from the mid-2000s. Mm. But Are you like, sure you're a libertarian, <laughs> Jacob? Because uh, you're sounding pretty lefty to me. I feel like we're vibing. So that's the thing. Like, the reality is that, like, I often will sound like a leftist, even though I disagree with a lot of the leftist mm-hmm. ideas at the end of the day. Because, you know, I think that it actually is actually a very libertarian idea to say that, you know, somebody should not be able to negotiate with the seller for an item they're trying mm-hmm. to buy. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is a major, you know, government that is a major way government is stepping in to erode the free market because in a truly free market, a government agency would be able to negotiate for drug prices. So I think that's Mm -hmm. actually a very libertarian policy to say Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't block somebody spending God knows how many gazillions of dollars on a purchase from being able to negotiate those prices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm sorry to me to take you down that frolicking detour. I derailed your question about, uh, Yes, I was going to say, as much as I love to discuss a lot of these (laughs) matters, it was not why I dialed in. Uh My first quick question was, whatever happened to Virgil, Texas? Uh, I made a statement about that uh, when it happened, and I said that you would hear an update from him. And unfortunately, I haven't heard anything else. And if I I knew anything more, I would would let you know I, I would. Ah, okay, gotcha. I must have missed the statement. Then I'll have to go back and look for it. But... Yeah, it's on the Patreon, and I think Dave Weigel uh, 
put it on Twitter as well. Uh, okay. And then secondly, I also, in the context of this conversation, I'm, I'm guessing without hearing the episode that the person you interviewed was the person behind that New York Magazine piece that came yes. out. So that it, actually... Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that actually got me thinking about Sean King, and the Daily Beast ran a piece about him a couple of years ago, and he's mm-hmm. been, even before the various, you know, financial issues with the various BLM network found and related foundations, mm-hmm. Sean King was sort of in the news for this a while back, and it sort of fizzled out. Yeah, what struck me, I, I obviously thought of that too during this, and what strikes me about the difference there is that there was a, quite a healthy media appetite for interrogating his finances, as I recall, and a lot yes. of media and press about it. And he was, I don't know, I didn't follow it closely, but responsive, perhaps insufficiently so, perhaps people still had their quibbles. But I remember reading a really long piece that was supposed to prove something about him because, you know, cards in the table you know, I I worked with him at the Intercept. You know, he was on the Bernie campaign. I like him as a person, and I wanted to know if there was truth to all of these allegations that have been, you know, floating around. And I remember reading that piece very closely and not finding anything. It was the same kind of implication without anything concrete. And he followed up with a really long, lengthy response that was intended to address all the points. And I feel like it fizzled because no one really had anything to say to his response. If I'm wrong and there's something I'm missing, I, I would love for people to you know put it in the comments of this episode or you know uh, send it to the bad faith email or or what have you. But what I noticed was that the appetite, whether it's right or wrong, to investigate Sean King didn't seem to translate to any of the women. Um, that are, you know, attributed, you know, most, most attributed with the Black Lives Matter movement. And it seems, in fact, like a lot of the people who are the biggest defenders of, you know, Patrice Cullors and co are the very same people who had a lot of issues with Sean King. And so I don't know what's right or wrong or what's true. We don't even really know if there's been any inappropriate conduct from the Black Lives Matter leadership. You know, it's not proven at this point. There's just some you know, lack of transparency that's troubling at this point. But the the inconsistent approach that some figures in this space have taken to their critique where they seem to be okay with one party and have a lot of criticism of the other is suspicious in and of itself to me, especially since right or wrong, however you think or whatever is true about Sean King's fundraising, he does have a much more leftist, materialist, explicitly Marxist political orientation. And the fact that he's the one that's gotten attracted to the ire Whereas these women who are getting Glenn Fittich advertisements and UGG partnerships aren't is suspicious in and of itself to me. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And I would also note that one of the big projects that Sean came under attack for was his attempt to relaunch the North Star as Mm -hmm. sort of like a Black-centered media outlet. Mm -hmm. And I guess in the years since that sort of failed to launch, we actually have had a couple of startups that are kind of trying to fill that void. Like we just saw Capital B News launch from, uh, I'm blanking on her name now, one of the women who were behind Vox who left Vox to launch Capital B. And the 19th, mm-hmm. I think, has also sort of taken up that mm-hmm. space, too. Mm-hmm. So I'm also, like, wondering if, like, those things emerged as part of Sean King's failure to launch or they would have emerged separately. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know if you know you saw the news that the, um, what you call it, uh, the Gawker, uh, the Root, sorry, the yes. Root, the, you know, Gawker's kind of black portal is going down. Uh 
I think that was reported last week or so. And yes. it, I, I think that, I mean, I had a lot of issues with the route. I had a lot of issues on the editorial staff at the route and the choices that they made and had some not very pleasant interactions with some folks. Certainly not everybody there. I had pleasant interactions with several others, but I feel like part of the problem when we talk about misinformation and capture of the black vote and people like Jim Clyburn and Obama having this undue influence and being able to derail the NBA strike and all these potentially really revolutionary moments, like it comes back down to there being not only not independent media, but not an independent black media that's a trusted news source separate and apart from the establishment. And so whatever you think of any of these individual efforts, whatever my critiques of the root are, whatever your critiques of Sean King are, it seems obvious to me that there should be something. And it is deeply frustrating that nothing seems to be able to get off the ground. Although I will say the Grio seems to be doing good work and is very strong. And I happen to know there's some really great leftists on an editorial team at Essence now as well. I believe that April Ryan left her old job for the Grio. Do you know if that's correct? Oh, I don't. She, April Ryan left. Who, who was she with? She was I mean, with she was a White House American Urban Radio Network. I actually don't know a lot about it. My exposure to her was mostly when she was doing pieces for CNN. But mm-hmm. I thought I heard that she was going to the Grio. I don't know if that's true, though. So I, I'm not sure. But wanna... the Grio seems to be growing at quite a clip. I've been following it. A classmate of mine actually is senior there, Natasha Alford um, from college. And so I, I, I noticed the growth and I noticed the hiring and I've noticed how – you know, much better the web portal is than it was, you know, five or six or seven years ago. And I, I'm really happy to see it. it they seem to be attracting a, a professional staff and have a good team there. However, whether or not their politics uh, reflect the diversity of the political landscape is a different question, but I would love to see more leftist writing for that outlet. Yeah, definitely. And Capital B News is like brand new, having just launched. But I'm also very curious to see where they go and how that project mm. goes. Oh, also the Black the Black News Network, uh, Black News Channel, BNC. Is that Lamar Eugene Hill is over there. Um, No, that's – sorry. I mean, yes, oh. his is – maybe I'm calling it the wrong thing. Wait a minute. Uh, I can't the remember. The Black where... News Channel is what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. I can't remember where Eugene Perrier landed after he left his radio program, but I thought that might be where it was. Uh, what is – what is – you know, he's at – um, what's it called? Ugh. I'm trying to Google it real quick, but I'm just going to annoy yes. everybody as they're waiting for me to figure it out. Media geography <laughs> and all. <laughs> right. Anyway, no, he's great. And people should listen to that as well. Breakthrough news. He's breakthrough news. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll definitely check out Capital B News. And thank you for calling in. Yeah. Thank you, Brie. Have a good evening. You too. Steve, you are up next. What's on your mind? Uh, You're going to have to unmute yourself with a little corncob looking microphone in the bottom right hand corner. Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing, Steve? Hi, Bree. For the sake of brevity, and mm. all, so all our other um, uh, callers can get on, I'm going to only focus on what I'm calling about, not the topic. Is that okay? Okay. Shoot. A couple of weeks ago, I came on to the debrief with uh, information about an oligarch named Stan Kroenke. Now, um, um, uh, Stan Kroenke owns a couple of sports teams. 
One of them is the Los Angeles Rams. Bree, do you follow sports? I'm afraid I don't, and I'm afraid that I'm going to disappoint you with not having really any insight into this question. Okay. I mean, well, that's that's the risk when you when you ask a question that's off the topic of the episode. I'm afraid it's okay. I'm, I'm, it's okay. I'll do my best to elaborate. Okay, the well, the Los Angeles Rams are playing in the Super Bowl this um, uh, this Sunday, mm-hmm. and you um, uh, mentioned the uh, last uh, the last time I was on here that you know media attention is crucial for gar- um, uh, garnering platforms to promote um, there were there was a lot of media attention on them uh, there's going to be a lot of media attention on the uh, congressional races this year mm-hmm. well there is no bigger media event all year every year than the super bowl and so why so what better time to prosecute the hideous inequality in every every facet of life than to target let me I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm I'm meandering about that that's no not no you're, you're you're asking a question about whether or not leftists should exploit the attention around the Super Bowl to draw attention to various you know, pol- yes, political utilizing, priorities of ours. Mm-hmm. Utilizing specifically Stan Kroenke, and let me let me explain why. They, there is no singularly reviled person in the state of Missouri than Stan Kroenke. Mm-hmm. When they the Rams won the conference championship last week, and I saw, I saw that black hole of a man trying to emulate human emotion on the podium i <laughs> every 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 um, uh, local journalist that i i'm aware of was fulminating against stan against stan can you help there me understand strict- why he's so so hated i know i asked you this last time he well he moved the um, uh, rams he um, uh, moved the, the Los Angeles Rams with the St. Louis Rams, and he he moved them. Uh, he very abruptly moved them and left the uh, city of St. Louis on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars for the uh, stadium the Rams played in. Mm-hmm. Not all now that there is a lawsuit that um, uh, targeted that that re, um, uh, Stan actually lost, but mm-hmm. he just. He he rules the state like a feudal king, and I know it's it's not it's not him alone. But there is strategic, massive strategic utility to targeting specifically him as a as a villain, as a target, mm. to and juxtaposing that with other other black oligarchic black holes. Wait, he's married to the Walmart beings. heir? Yes. He's, wow. And, and, uh, so, Ann Walton Cronkey, and mm. my idea is, my specific idea is this. His primary residence is in Columbia, Missouri. Mm-hmm. 
And in Columbia, Missouri is the University of Missouri, or Mizzou as it's more commonly known. Mm-hmm. So sitting, sitting not 10 minutes from a state university is $150 billion in wealth. And yet, and yet, mm-hmm. uh, anyone not born rich, our generation, as well as the younger generations, and, and as you've pointed out in the past, some seniors too, are forced to take out usurious, illegitimate loans because there is no adequate funding for higher education now. Do mm-hmm. you... Now, I do the playbook. This the playbook I have in mind is. Do you recall six, a little over five years ago, a movement called Concerned Student One Nine Five O? No. There was a hunger striker. There, there was. It was about the um, uh, discrimination and racism that students of color face on above. Um, uh, College campuses, there was a hunger striker. Uh, the uh, chancellor was forced to resign. Do you not recall? I don't. I'm sorry. It's okay. But- That's all right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there was a massive protest movement that garnered national and even international attention. And I think if we replay some of the strategies that and tactics that they used, we could do a world of good. In, in, we could imbibe and popularize the concept of expropriation. And, well, I, I'm look, I look for as much support as I can on that because I can't do it alone. And it, yeah, you know, I mean, Steve, Steve, I hear you. I, and I, and I don't necessarily disagree, but I, I gotta say, this just isn't, I, I don't know quite what to say because I'm not familiar with this individual. I believe you when you say that he's reviled and I, I will co-sign the general principle that I think politicians should, you know, hop on to moments that are already like villains that already exist in the public sphere. I've joked often about how Bernie should have just made his campaign about how much Comcast sucks and use that as a way to talk about antitrust and monopolies. Right. So like, I'm, I'm completely with you, but I'm not exactly sure where to take the conversation between us here at, at this moment going forward. Okay. You know? um, I guess I'm asking for, a, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of an endorsement. Would you, would you support a campaign against Stan Kroenke in the state of Missouri? I say, I just, I don't, I'm not sure what that means against him. What is this an, an attacks the rich campaign? Like is he, is he, yes, doing, is he breaking the law? So. Like, is there something specific? I mean, yes, I think I think we all support a wealth tax. You know, Bernie had the best wealth tax in the biz. It's in, still enormously popular over with a majority of Americans. It's a disgrace that it's fallen out of uh, public eye. And to the extent that someone decided to use the prominence of Stan Kroenke around the Super Bowl season to re re, re you know inject energy into the issue of the need for a wealth tax, I think that's I think that's an excellent idea. Okay, well, I, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, so, of course. Thank you for calling uh, in, Steve. I appreciate okay. it. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. And this won't be the last we, or 
well, I won't. I, I've done enough on this, the debrief, but uh, uh, I'm going to continue working on it. I'm, I'm glad to hear to it. Let us okay. let us know when you when you have follow up and if there's any action items for us. Okay, Steve. Okay. All right. All right. Thank have you, a good buddy. night. Take care of yourself. You too. <laughs> All right, Sierra, you're up next, or is it Sierra? Hi, Bree. Um, it's actually Kira. Oh, Kira. Sorry. How are you yeah. doing, Kira? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Um, love the show. Um, I have like two quick things I want to talk about, but I'm I'll be respectful of time if you want to cut me off. Um, I just the first I wanted to ask you about or um, push you on is just I, I guess I've heard you express frustration about. Um, like those on the left who emphasize like organizing specifically like labor organizing and I, I it seems like maybe your issue is like their calls tend to be vague um, and I'm curious if maybe like I, I don't know if I've captured that correctly but I am curious if you'd be interested in having more um, guests that are focused on like the labor movement on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So my critique is not just that it's um, vague, but that the vague, um, the vague instructions to quote unquote organize usually come in response to a conversation about what alternative kind of political action is available to people. So it can start to feel like a, it's not an incentive. It's not a, it's not a sincere push for people to go and organize, which of course, who could object Mm -hmm. to that? It's people saying organize the second that any kind of organic alternative movement springs up. So for example, Hey, look, force the vote. There's an opportunity for actually a very small number of, Congress people who we all worked really hard to elect to actually earn their paychecks and hold up X, Y, and Z bill or hold up the vote for Nancy Pelosi in order to get some meaningful progressive concessions. And there was a whole half of the left media sphere that said, no, 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 we can't do that because mm-hmm. reasons. And also you, there's no shortcuts, hashtag no shortcuts, organize. And, mm-hmm. the, and that to me felt like a little bit of a non sequitur. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, okay, everyone should be organizing all the time, mm-hmm. but why is that a response to whether or not we should do this other thing? Why are these being treated like a zero sum game? And so what it can sometimes feel like, and I, and I don't usually feel like this is the perspective of labor organizers. I feel like it's more the perspective of pundits who themselves are doing mm-hmm. neither organizing nor advocacy for a more adversarial form of politics. You know, they're just not doing either thing. It's a way it's like a, it's a safe landing position to take when you want to seem serious and committed and you need an excuse not to do something else, you know, mm-hmm. to do something else that is not necessarily better or worse than organizing, but is another strategy and often something that is to taking advantage of a really organic um, political upswell. Mm-hmm. So imagine, imagine a world where, you know, the George Floyd protests were happening and someone like, you know, the TYT crowd had the audacity to cross their arms and say, this is stupid. This is just marching you know, everybody stop and organize. I mean, they wouldn't dare because, you know, there's no black people over there and they, <laughs> I think they wouldn't have the confidence to say something about a black led movement. But I, you know, I, it, to me, it's like these things, why are you, it seems like sometimes people are intentionally pinning those two political options against each other in a way that kind of can feel like it's intentionally intended to derail something that could be really impactful. 
Yeah, no, I'm with you there. I think, um, I guess like in my perspective, I think like the labor movement is like a super important part to achieving like the progressive change that we need, but it doesn't have to be like an, it shouldn't be an either or type of like option. Um, and I think one thing too, that's kind of hard or like not, I feel like there's not like a clear, you know, Oh, join the labor movement. Like that. It's not like, how do you do that? Like not everyone Mm -hmm. can, can, um, you know, organize their workplace, but I do think like there are, or one organization that I'm actually a part of, Mm. um, the emergency workplace organizing committee. It's, um, I think they really, I think, like, have a vision and an opportunity for, you know, people who want to maybe pivot from electoral politics or just also do both organizing and um, in electoral politics and the labor movement. Um, they basically have, basically, they're, they're, they have a vision for expanding the labor movement. And, like, I think... I don't know. I would encourage you maybe reaching out to them and having them as a guest, but I um, just, I would love to hear more like labor organizers on the pod because I think a lot of your like strategy, I think you do such a good job of, of kind of getting to the, really getting at strategy issues and, and asking really pointed questions about that. And I think the labor movement is also needs that I mean it's happening but I think it would it would there's a lot of strategic issues in the labor movement that need to be kind of sorted out too and I think we should have more discussions on it and I would love to see that on your podcast yeah I think that's a great idea I just um googled them as you were talking and followed them on twitter and I encourage other people to do so as well it looks like there's a a contact email option on their website and I will definitely be following up I think that you're completely right Thank you for that. Um, Thank you. And the one other thing I wanted to ask about um, is I was curious um, why it seemed that you didn't cover the um, California Medicare for All push. Um, I'm doing an interview uh, with uh, Ash uh, Cara tomorrow. So that will be next (laughs) Thursday's episode, I believe. Wow. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm really excited for that because I feel like, like the the conversation that we had around force the vote many months ago really mm-hmm. laid the groundwork for kind of the response that Ashkara got when he decided to pull, pull the bill mm-hmm. in terms of not forcing the vote. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously you were a proponent for force the vote. So I think that would be a really interesting conversation. Yep. Well, you, you read my <laughs> mind because he is, I will be talking to him tomorrow. And I think, we already have a slot for Monday's podcast, but I think it's going to be probably next Thursday's podcast. A little delayed, but that's that's the that's the downside of having only a biweekly show. <laughs> um, do you could you share any of your opinions on on what went down, or do you want to kind of keep it until you? Let's, let's keep it for the pod because I okay. do. I don't want to. You know, I want to give him. You know, I I think I have totally. the same questions that you have, and yeah. I want to give him a chance to explain himself and mm-hmm. not kind of put out into the world, um, you know, a level of negativity he might not appreciate walking into the lion's den as it were, you know, um, yeah, I think yeah. you'll, I, I, let me know in the comments if, this, if there's anything in particular you want to make sure he gets asked. Yeah. Well, I guess, sorry, um, you can cut me off, but just like, you know, Cal nurse it, like 
the labor movement was really pushing for Medicare for all in California and then you. And so I, they put out a statement when he pulled it and they were clearly upset. And I'm, I'm curious about. Yeah. It's the interesting because then you was also, you know, against worth the vote. Uh, oh, really? You know, remember that was a big, a, a, a big talking point that was adopted by, mm. you know, the anti-force of vote left was, Oh, yeah. NNU's not even on board. DSA is not yeah. even on board. And they used the fact that institutional leadership was silent or against in those institutions, even if the membership was enthusiastic. I remember DSA very belatedly took a poll. Uh, I think it was just the healthcare, um, the Medicare for all subgroup did a, did a poll and it was rushed and not very many people participated, but the overwhelming majority of participants did support force the vote. And that was the only kind of straw mm. poll that DSA took. That's the only, indica- it's not much, but it's the only indication we have of what membership thought. I and see. obviously DSA ignored that. And it seemed, I talked to some in a new folks who felt similarly, but leadership was unwilling to support it. And at the time I had reached out to in to interview somebody about COVID because it was, you know, Thanksgiving time and everyone was talking about what to do with COVID and the holidays. And I had planned to interview Bonnie Castillo about just general COVID stuff. I followed up saying, I'd also like to ask you about force the vote. And at that point they basically went radio silent and I couldn't get them to respond to my emails until January, at which point they told me that nobody could come on the podcast because they were too, you know, the nurses were too busy in the field administering to COVID patients. Mm -hmm. I subsequently heard an NNU representative on Ryan Grimm's show at the intercept followed up saying, well, it seems like you guys have time now to do interviews. Would you mind coming on the show and talking to me? And at that time they said, well, that wasn't a nurse. That was a political representative from NNU. And here's a number you should contact to reach that person. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I never asked to speak specifically to a nurse. I don't need medical care. I wanted to know opinions <laughs> about what the institutional decision-making system was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I reached out to the number, the email address that they had provided and no one ever got back to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what that means. And I don't know what that means, but it was interesting to me, the posture of this, that NNU seemed to be so enthusiastic about uh, forcing a vote. And I, I'm happy that's the case. And I certainly don't mean to hold anything against them from back in the time, back in the day, but it does seem to be a distinct posture shift from fall of 2020. Yeah. I kind of feel like people, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I feel like people, I was with force of vote in the beginning, but I feel like maybe people have changed their tune or like realized that maybe they were wrong. Yeah, which is fair, which is allowed. And I was certainly not want to like harangue someone for changing. Totally. But then like, you know, it's a lot easier to kind of like change your tune in a new situation Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, it's not connect. Like no one's going to be like, oh, I made a mistake about force the vote last time. It's a lot easier to just be like, I'm going to support it this time and not let's forget about last time. But I really think like, even though force the vote was a failure it was kind of i think a little bit of a success in terms of changing the way that people think about like this type of strategy political strategy i think so too and i I'll, i'm gonna take that as a i'm gonna take that as a win <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna thanks, take the wins Grace. i can <laughs> thank you thank you kira thanks right. for calling in thank you bye uh all right andy welcome back how are you feeling this evening Did I do that wrong? There you go. How you doing, Andy? Hi, Bree. I hope you're having a good evening. I am. What's on your mind? How's your evening going? Uh, I mean, other than the fact that I had to uh, sit this morning listening to my microecom professor um, <laughs> gush over how brave and 
noble working class heroes uh, truck uh, convoy in Canada mm-hmm. are. Um, it was all right. <laughs> are you are you in uh, undergrad or grad school or undergrad? Oh, you're young, Andy. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, anyway, I have a few points I wanted to cover, so I'll just get straight to it out of sure. respect for everyone else. Oh, sure. Everyone's so wonderfully respectful today. I appreciate <laughs> it. All right, Andy, hit me. All right. So I feel like I'm at a place now where I've become completely disinvested in what ideological labels certain influencers on the left used to yeah. identify themselves. We get caught up so much in whether this streamer, podcaster, commentator, what have you, is nominally the right kind of leftist that it often overshadows the substance of their participation in this political space. Like, I'm more interested in their political analysis, what kinds of people and organizations they associate this, themselves with, and what specific political goals is their advocacy geared towards than I am in whether they identify as a progressive, a social democrat, a communist, or whatever a flavor of leftist. And I feel this way because of the discourse surrounding people like Patrice Cullors and, mm-hmm. regrettably, by extension, Hassan Piker, though mm-hmm. I would say that both situations are not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's funny because there was a time on the podcast or if you had a political guest on, they would get the question, you know, are you a democratic socialist? And it was like this gotcha moment. And I remember thinking as I was interviewing Morgan, like, I just don't even care anymore. Like that just doesn't somehow it doesn't seem to matter, not because the label like doesn't matter, but because there's so many people who, you know, describe themselves in that way, who've ultimately been disappoint disappointing to the movement and people you know, it just doesn't seem to be connected to any actual like action item, you know? Right. Um, and, you know, we did that episode about Hassan Piker and the, and the stuff in the house. And I know that there was this recent brouhaha over the car, which I tried to remain yeah. blissfully <laughs> ignorant of. Um, and I think that uh, Richard Wolf and Chris Hedges said it best on that episode that at the end of the day, all you can do is look to see if there is some correlation between people's behaviors and the amount of money they've earned to see if it's actually affected them. And so you don't have to like just go based on conjecture. And, you know, I don't know if it's because of their money earned or because of a lack of sincere commitment at any point, but I think it's fair to say that I find the direction that Black Lives Matter leadership has taken to be frustrating and in fact directionless. I think that, you know, I, I think, I don't know. Hassan, Hassan's position is that people pay him for entertainment. He's a streamer. He makes a lot of money and that's, I, that's fine. Like people are choosing that and he works a lot. He's on there 24 seven and that is what it is. But I also understand the frustration of people who uh, support him and watch him because they have progressive politics that's kind of been informed by their own financial struggles. And not to just see him make money or to buy a house, which, you know, fair enough, houses in California are expensive and maybe a $2 million house isn't that big a deal in in certain parts of the country. But to gratuitously, you know, kind of, flaunt a $200,000 car maybe is in a different realm and maybe he's allowed to do it, but also you just got to take your licks in terms of public criticism. Like, you know, what's going to happen if you do something like that, he could very privately buy a $200,000 car and nobody would be the wiser. 
And so obviously choices are being made and, you know, with the good comes bad. And, you know, all I can say is I hope that he's satisfied with his choices. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I feel like I'm completely where you are on that. At this point, I'm just so exhausted with whole, that whole discourse that I'm just. Yeah. At this point, I just want to, you know, evaluate what net good or net bad they have on this political space. Um, yeah. The yeah. other, yeah, the other thing I wanted to say though, um, that this is about the episode was mm-hmm. um, Sean describing his experience with the blowback from his reporting reminded me of that brilliant episode you had with Pascal Robert, Andre Demise, mm-hmm. and Dr. Paul McCombe on the um, Black Misleadership class. Mm-hmm. Now, I have friends who are Black and aren't as politically engaged as I am, but generally share the same proclivities that I do and usually appreciate my perspective when they ask for it. However, mm-hmm. I try not to give my opinion too much on conversations surrounding the state of Black politics. So I try to point my friends to uh, to voices like yours and Nina Turner's, as well as YouTubers like Khadija Mboe and FD Signifier, who I feel are much better resources when it comes to that topic. I worry, though, and tell me if I'm right about this or not, that me doing that can come across in a similar way that non-Black conservatives tell Black people that they need to listen to Thomas Sowell or Candace Owens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the big big difference is that Rob Bear, uh, Pascal Robert is dope, and Candace Owens is him. <laughs> um, you know, there's a risk. It is what it is. I mean, you have to make decisions that are informed by the quality and intimacy of your friendships. I would not go up to some random, let's say, Asian acquaintance and be like, "Oh yeah, have you, um, you know, ever?" heard of um what's her face over at jacobin you know like just picking with some random you know have you ever heard of that professor Catherine Liu? like i think you'd really like her yeah because you know, that's suspect <laughs> but if someone i know happens to have interests that are germane to what Catherine talks about you know regardless of their ethnic identity or maybe perhaps because she's talking about something that's specific to an asian american experience then I would have confidence in my relationship to be able to say, Hey, like, I, I think I know you and I think that you'd be interested in this. So that's just, I mean, that's just an interpersonal judgment issue. Okay. Uh, well, I appreciate that, Brie. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. All right, Matt. What's up? Hey, is this working? Am I unmuted? Yes. I can hear you loud and clear. Oh, fantastic. Glad it worked this time. So, um, I actually want to go back to, to last episode about Morgan Harper. Sure. Um, so one, I wanted to particularly talk about her campaign pitch, mm. but also I am someone who's very much so uh, vote for the lesser, lesser evil and utilize the democratic party as opposed to like third alternatives. So if you want to comment from someone like that, we can go back to, should we even use the democratic party to achieve our objectives? I'm happy to be a voice that other people may not be on that. Um, but talking about Morgan Harper, um, I went. I was really excited uh, to watch that interview with her. Uh, I got a lot of good vibes from her. I think she's authentic and sincere from what I can tell. Mm. And then I started to watch the debate, which she did very, very good in. And then I went to her website and uh, I watched her campaign ad, the like mm. the big one that everyone can play. Mm-hmm. And I think like her big pitch kind of terrified me. And here's why I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. So the big pitch, there's basically four parts that she lays out is this is what I'm running on. And she's running in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I'm from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So I feel like culturally there's a lot of par- uh, parallels between 
white people around here and white people in Ohio. Mm. Um, so the big pitch is one, uh, abortion, like, you know, pro-abortion women's rights. Two, mm. curb gun violence with like uh, gun laws. Three, workers get paid what they deserve. And four, racial justice. Mm. Now, Ohio is a state that is 81% white. And when I went to look up support for things like abortion, gun control, Gun control was basically even. It was like a 48% we need more laws, 48% we don't. Mm. Abortion. Um, I, I think it's still it's still like a clear majority don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade, but even some you know polling from in the last 10 years, it's like it's really divided and most people think like abortion's amoral and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering why someone who has done such a wonderful job talking about uh, workers' issues and the issues of people who have a low marketability in a, in a market-based economy, um, why the hell would you lead with like three of those big points? I mean, mm. it would seem like the, the tactic to use is go for the universal messages that everyone across the state or damn near a, a large majority of them can connect with. Like, we need better health care. We need infrastructure investments. We need more educational funding. Why would you go for these 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 like socially incendiary and controversial things to mm. where you can have fiscally left but socially right people go, I'm out. Like, I can't pay attention to her. I'm not on board mm. with that. Why not? That's interesting. Can we, can, we, can we listen to a little bit of that? Do you mind if I just play a little bit of that video so we can get a flavor uh, of what it is you're talking yeah, about? It's, her big pitch is in the back half, and it might be a little annoying because it's like this hallelujah buildup that they're playing over it. Okay, but, let's, I see her in this opening shot in a church, so I think I got the right one. Let's, let's just, the whole thing's only two minutes, 20 seconds, so if you guys bear with me, I think it would be this – is, this is interesting analysis, and I think I want us to all be on the same page. Okay, here we go. Morgan Harper. Morgan Harper. Morgan Harper. Well, speaking of political change, Morgan Harper. Her name is Morgan Harper. She sat down and chopped it up with me, and I've seen personally in public and not in public the work that she puts in for our people. I'm Morgan Harper, and I'm running for U.S. Senate as a Democrat for Ohio to offer a new voice, a voice from and for the people. Central Ohio took care of me as a newborn with an uncertain future. The community found me a foster home as an infant and a family to raise me on the east side. I won scholarships to attend college and law school. I went on to work at the Consumer Protection Agency, founded during the Obama administration. The first ever independent consumer watchdog. We won billions of dollars back for people who got ripped off by big banks. I've been taking on big tech, trying to break up multinational monopolies that have been crushing workers, small businesses, and threatening our democracy. Here at home, we've been organizing communities left behind. I'm here. I actually came today. To get political power back on our side. We mobilized our community to protect the most vulnerable from the pandemic. To get as many people as possible vaccinated. Ohio needs fresh, new leadership in Washington and a new game plan. Hold me accountable. Built from the ground up, door by door, block by block. It's time for an Ohio where a woman's right to choose is always protected. And we keep our streets safe from gun violence. Uh, Prop 22. Where workers get paid what we deserve. And where we finally achieve racial justice. They're counting Ohio out. They're counting me out. But they don't know the power that lies in you and the fight that lies in me. When African Americans vote in large numbers in Ohio, Ohio votes Democratic. Yes. And when they don't come to the polls, Ohio votes Republican. Yes. 
What's going to happen? I'm Morgan Harper, and I'm running for the United States Senate. Again, Matt, like, do you still feel, I mean, you're right. She hits an abortion note. She says, protect people from gun violence, which isn't exactly the same thing as, you know, take guns. I mean, that's, people can perceive that as like a, a tough on crime message as much as they can perceive that as a get guns off the street message. Right. Um, I, I don't think that's how most people are going to take it coming from a Democrat. Uh, and then also if you go back to kind of like her opening in the debate, um, she kind of taps on like the NRA is bad. And those aren't things that I disagree with. But I think that if you want to have if you want to talk about four issues that are going to help you win an election in Ohio, I don't think those are the four issues that you pick abortion, gun violence. Or but but isn't it true that the first half of the ad was all about uh, the first half was good. and hitting, you know, I liked the first half, the first half, like it, it made her seem really anti-corporate, anti-corruption, yeah, yeah, draining the swamp, all yeah, of that. Yes, that seems that seems positive. I think, you know, it, it makes people have a lot of sympathy for her as an orphan. And there's these notes about a community provided for me. Mm-hmm. And a, as a community, we should provide for each other. That's all very positive. Mm-hmm. But then you get into the big pitch, what I will do for you, you know, what I will do for Ohio. It's like, I think the four that you go for, if it has to be four is, you know, everyone gets health care. Um, and, and actually, she started with this in her pitch in the debate. It's one, healthcare for everyone, two, thousands mm-hmm. of new jobs from green energy transition, and workers get paid what they deserve. And then you fold something in there, or if it's education, if it's another anti corporate message, you know, against monopolization, if it's campaign finance reform. I think those are things that, like, everyone in, in that, or most people, the vast majority of people in the state would, would, find, would find very compelling and would help build goodwill and trust with Morgan Harper, as opposed to hopping to some really hot button controversial things, which are going to turn a lot of people off. Because there are people out there that are socially conservative and fiscally left. They just have a hard time voting for leftists because they, you know, because of the abortion thing or because of religious ideas. But but let me me get this out, Matt. I think that this is a primary ad. And that's that's not me saying I disagree with you, but this is an ad about her trying to beat Tim Ryan. And as she said in the interview... Her pitch is that if Tim Ryan is a Democratic nominee, he won't be able to get enough black people to turn out to actually win the nomination. And that's why the focus on racial justice, that's why that little interview snippet with the black women um, talking to, was that Chris O'Donnell? Like that, that's what all of that is about because this is a primary pitch. And I might agree with you. I mean, I definitely agree with you in terms of a general election pitch, but her toughest battle is going to be this primary. Okay. Um, I don't want to interrupt you. Did, was, that the, was that the period on your mm-hmm, point? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. My counterpoint is, isn't a lot of her winning this primary getting independents and Republicans to come over and help her out? No, because it's a closed primary. No, I thought, I thought she was talking about like when she's gone out and she's talked to people, she gets like these, these, no, like, she, she did say up, that. Like, Can I vote for you? Yeah. So yeah, she, did, she did say that because that was in response to my question about whether it was an open primary and she's no, it's a, it's a closed primary, but so people could still. People can still, if they're independent or politically disinclined, or I mean, they can register as a Democrat, but most people, most people are not going to go and change their registration. Would you? Would you change? Would you register as a Republican for a candidate (laughs) that I was like legitimately excited about? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but people aren't. I would vote for you if I could. It's not exactly the same thing as I'm excited enough to fully register. Not even counting the fact that most people don't know the registration deadlines. I mean, it's that's that's a hurdle. There's a reason okay. why closed primary outcomes and open primary outcomes are very, very different. All right. 
But that's what I don't disagree with you substantively, but like, and, and it seems to me clear from this, to be clear from this ad, that this is a primary ad strategy. Okay. Just, I know. still disagree with that for Ohio because one, if you're running as a Democrat, we probably already assume that you're like pro women's rights. Like, I don't know why that would be a lead for you or why it's any kind of distinction between you no, and Like, I, I'm with Demrad. you, but you keep saying it's a lead when even you can see that the first, like, 60% of the commercial was all about the corporate malfeasance stuff and fighting for the people. It had nothing to do with any of the identity stuff. It, so it, she didn't, even in the context of this ad, she did not lead with any of that. It's literally at the tail end of the ad. Okay. When I say lead, I'm talking about that big point where it's like, what I will do for Ohio. That, that's what I meant by the lead. Like, when I, when I come in, I say, well, here's what you're going to get when you vote for me. The first part's like a lot of exposition. It's about building her up as a character. It's the resume, you know. So semantically, you know, just talking about when she comes in and finally says, "This is what you're going to get." So I, I still okay, feel well, like I for you. that I'm, state, even mm-hmm. like, and I, I'm from South Carolina. I mean, the Democrats around here are different from the Democrats in California and other places. Like, I still don't think abortion is the thing I would start with running with a Democrat around here. I would definitely talk about like a, a straight anti-corporate message, pro-worker message, you know, helping, helping build the community from the ground up. You know, that, that's where all of my energy would go. And especially, you know, if, if you do count on having any kind of independence or politically disinclined people or even Republicans switching party to come help you out. Maybe that's true, but I suspect that the goal here, again, is she's a woman and she's black and she's running against Tim Ryan. And the feeling is that if she can mobilize black voters and women voters for her, then she has a chance of of winning the primary. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I suspect that abortion is, especially at this moment in time, protecting abortion rights is, is, is a significant issue for women who identify as Democrats and who are registered voters in the Democratic Party. I and I, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you on the substance of the messaging. I think that she could probably win without emphasizing those things. And maybe the stuff will come back and bite her in the ass on the other end. This is the dance that Democrats always have to play in a primary versus the general election. But I, I, I can see strategically what this ad is getting at. And I don't I can't tell her, given that I don't have the poll numbers or whatever she's looking at, that she's wrong to try it this way. OK. Yeah, I don't have them either, but I wanted to wanted to open up a conversation. Well, thank that. you. I, I appreciate yeah. your question because I think it was it was helpful to look at that ad. And I think this has been I mean, this is a thinker. This is who knows? Well, I be, I'll be watching this closely and I'm glad you brought that ad to our attention. I think it really uh, informed this discussion. So thanks, Matt. Hey, thank you. You have a wonderful night. And thank you, you so too. much for allowing Take us care. to come on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's really a, a privilege. All right, Ryan, you're up next. What's going on? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so I had one question, or I had a question, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I teach history, um, and so we we we're, we talk. I mean, we talk about. I teach U.S. history, so we talk about like race and stuff. I just want to know what do you like being that, you know, race is a construct, a social construct. Um, what? I guess what do you what do you what's your take on saying black or African American when referring to um, African American people? Like, do I especially prefer one term or the other? The not the not do you prefer, but like what? I guess what? I mean, I, I I don't mean like you specifically, but like and I guess you can only speak for yourself, obviously. But yeah, sure. What <laughs> what would be better? I guess. Um, I personally prefer black. Uh, I think that there is some linguistic 
uh, there's a lack of linguistic specificity when talking about um, the black people who are descendant of American chattel slavery. And there isn't really a word. I mean, that's why ADOS has been invented, American Descendants of Slaves. That's why that acronym has been invented. Um, I think it's a truism that when you aren't able to kind of specify and label things, oftentimes you get politically swept under the rug. Uh, You get conflated with other groups and your issues, your specific issues can go ignored. And I think whatever you think of some prongs of the ADOS movement their point is that sometimes the specific grievances of black Americans get sublimated and deprioritized. And I like the word black because it comes closest to getting at the, the group that I happen to descend from. <laughs> um, okay. That's, it's still not specific. I mean, everybody's black, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> everybody from everywhere is black, but like there is something about the African-American that, you know, every other kind of immigrant group. I don't know. It, I don't know. I don't know. I, when I was little, it was African-American. And everybody said African-American. And that was a PC thing to say. Right. Now, nowadays it almost feels like you're trying too hard not to say black to say African-American. Like it feels like clinical or something like, you know, uh, I feel oh, I, Caucasian, I, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, like who, what are we, what are yeah. we like measuring skulls here? Like, <laughs> Oh man, and like I'll throw in like Anglo American. Like I use them interchangeably, like mm-hmm. um, depending on like what we're talking about. But I'll also like throw in like Anglo American, just to just to get that one in there. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm not offended if someone says African American. You know, like I don't, I don't really care. Um, but I don't know. You know that thing where people kind of whisper black. <laughs> like, it feels like people are to the extent that people are uncomfortable saying black i like when people say black like i it seems to me a weird kind of litmus test and i'm not like mad at you for not saying black but you know i mean i i say it interchangeably honestly mm-hmm. like i mean i'm not like it's not taking up too much of my mental space like, I don't, <laughs> you know i i you know i but um yeah, yeah, I struggle I with just... it because there, there's this level, like some of these these um, hyphenated terms, they resist Americanness. You know what I mean? Like, there's something mm-hmm. that doesn't know sometimes doesn't sit right with me about like Asian American, especially due to the extent to which Asian Americans are so often otherized as something other than American, um, mm-hmm. and their national identity is questioned so often that having there's something about having you know a whole other continent wedged in there resist American agree. identity. And I feel similarly about African American and it's notable that white Americans don't have, I mean, no one even calls them anything other than American. <laughs> yeah. That's you know? why. Yeah. That's why I try to throw in the, the Anglo American mm-hmm. in there. But like, I, I completely agree. Like if like I would just, I would just refer to us as Americans, like everybody, like, but also like when I'm teaching history, like I have to like, did, you know, talk about, like slavery and all this stuff. And I, it's, I can't just call, I mean, I guess I could just call them all Americans. Well, no, because this, well, is, this yeah, is the initial no, yeah, point about like, needing to be, I mean, especially since you're talking <laughs> about a period in history in which the racial group, whether or not you think, you know, whether or not racism is a social construct, the social construct had legal implications no, that it, were very yeah. much real. And so, you know, to ignore the category of African-American is to ignore the historical persecution of that group. It's the same as this conversation we've been having with Obi Goldberg and erasing the specific anti-Jewish animus or, 
you know, any other kind of sensacy claim that people have wanting to be counted so they can be heard. By the way, you guys are all going to love Monday's episode with Thomas Shatterson Williams and Batya Unger Sargon, where we get into exactly this issue and whether or not racecraft, um, you know, the issue that we talked about in the TCW episode we did already is at work in this contemporary urge in the context of this conversation about Whoopi Goldberg and is Judaism a race, whether or not there is well, how we feel about the push to continue to use what is ultimately like a Nazi classification of what the quote unquote Jewish race is in order to prove political points in this instance. So if you're not already and, a subscriber, you're going to want to be for Monday. <laughs> yes. And that, that's what I, that's something I've really been. Um, that's something I've been thinking about. Um, like the, just the, uh, the racecraft element of, mm-hmm. I feel like that kind of is going on all. I don't know. I'm, I'm Hispanic. Like I don't, I don't like just the fact that I don't really feel comfortable. Like even, asking questions you know um mm-hmm. like i i feel like i don't want to like i feel like i'm walking on eggshells you know like not yeah we all do i mean i feel that <laughs> way when talking about other group stuff all the time you know i was certainly <laughs> sweating bullets through monday's conversation oh. you know? Like, <laughs> and, you know it is what it is um you know look people a lot of liberals like to say that there's no such thing as cancel culture and yada 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 but <sighs> I mean, sometimes, okay, sometimes I just think that we, even if people have to endure hearing some dumb stuff, we would just all be so much better off if the dumb stuff were just out in the open and we could talk about it and correct it than everybody being so afraid of never being able to live down the dumb thing that they said, (laughs) uh, that they never talk about it and they're never able to work through it. Yeah, that's that. Like I, I, I know some teachers who have been who have been fired over you know saying the wrong thing. Like, should they have said what they said? Definitely not. But or probably not. But I mean, I don't know if they would have should have lost their job. Yeah, over things like that. It's difficult. It's really difficult. Because I, I mean, I, I I say this a lot in a lot of different contexts. Me too, etc. But there has just there has. The solution, the antidote to cancel culture isn't like Tucker Carlson screaming about cancel culture. The antidote is as as a community putting our heads together and figuring out what, you know, penance actually looks like, what rehabilitation, what restorative justice actually looks like. Not sitting around saying, oh, it's not fair that so-and-so got a book deal again or they're back on TV or they weren't actually canceled. (laughs) Like, okay, is, is the consequence you want that if someone transgresses, they are never in society again? Well, maybe that's true for certain kinds of bad acts. Maybe, maybe R. Kelly should never get another record deal. Okay. He like kept women in a weird sex cult and, you know, raped young girls and all this stuff. Fine. But there's, you know, there's, there's, you know, R. Kelly. And then there's the person who, you know, said the N word while quoting somebody else in a classroom. (laughs) You know, there's the guy who read Tom Sawyer out loud. And as a society, we have to figure out, it's not that, you know, you're completely maybe chill with the Tom Sawyer guy, but we have to acknowledge those differences in society and have different metrics for who gets to come back and how. Because I don't think it's a just world. It's certainly not a leftist perspective to say that any transgression, no matter what scale, means that you no longer have any value in society. I 100% agree. It, it's, it's, it just blows my mind that this is like the dominant strain. And I, I feel like a lot of it is on Twitter, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, this like it it's 
this is the dominant strain of, well, of thought. Like Twitter, instead of well, no, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's the mainstream but, news and media, you know, well, yes. liberal media trying to you know do this Rogan stuff. I mean, it's oh yeah, a hundred percent. But I guess yeah, um, but I guess like everybody, what everybody's afraid of is that that pile up that um, that like oh, a whole bunch, you're going to outrage a bunch of people. And then it's, they're going to be forced like you're like one of the teachers that I've uh, known have been like fired. Like it wasn't because the, the administration was like, oh, like we we don't like what you said. It's because like we don't want backlash. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's the brilliance of Donald Trump. LOL. You know, <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, you're, you're not effect. offending me. <laughs> <laughs> the brilliance of Donald Trump is that he never apologized for anything. And that is another way to resist cancellation. You just <laughs> fully, fundamentally don't acknowledge fault. And, you know, it's when you're not your own boss. When you're Donald Trump, you can do that. You're not your own boss. You can't be canceled. When you're Joe Rogan <laughs> and you have 11 million listeners, you can't really be canceled because you always carry with you your own platform. But ordinary people you know, can't just muscle through and not apologize their way through it. But, you know, it, it is, it is, that is the trick. That is the trick is to not, not give in to the crowd. And eventually people lose the appetite for it. And the reason everybody is able to come back from cancellation is because ultimately no one has the energy to sustain that anger for forever. And people want to see more Mel Gibson movies. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> America loves a Patriot. Oh, I guess so. <laughs> Uh, the kids always ask to watch that movie. I'm like, eh, it's not it's a, a great, we're, we're, it's a great film. Heath Ledger. I like it. I mean, I mean <laughs> it's a classic. Our uh, great Australian American actors. <laughs> yeah, I, sh- I showed a little bit of Gangs in New York. They got young Leo. Mm, yeah, I mean, you know, I was never a Leo girl. Uh, <laughs> but, but Heath, R.I.P. Man. All right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for calling. Oh man, thank you. <laughs> Eric Smith, what is on your mind this evening? Hey, Bree. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk about is, well, first to go back, because I wasn't going to discuss this, but um, the one of the callers, Matt, I believe his name was, He just, I just wanted to push back just a little bit on some of the stuff that he's saying mm-hmm. for the simple fact that I feel like what he, I feel like sometimes if, so let me put it this way, if the Democrats you win elections by getting X percentage of black votes, X percentage of Latino votes, and X percentage of Asian votes, whatever that demographic is. Mm-hmm. I think that that should always be your main focus. And the reason I'm saying that is sometimes it feels like <clears throat> as a black voter, mm-hmm. we have to, that a politicians, if a politician comes up seeing that, okay, we're going to have to put you aside because I know I can bank your vote to get this mythological, like, white vote mm-hmm. that, not, that I don't think is necessarily going to come to them. I think you're just, you're, you're, you're losing your base. I think you should, I think one of the things that Trump did well is what Republicans do well is your base is your base and you should always focus on your base uh, as your your top priority. So, mm-hmm. and I also believe that in more, one of the things Morgan is trying to do in her particular campaign, hopefully she succeeds, it's very diff- difficult to do, is to get disaffected voters. Mm-hmm. Voters that don't vote. Voters that used to vote maybe like years ago, but haven't voted in years. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so 
this is this is such an important tension point because there is this very legitimate frustration among black voters, you know, the historical base of the Democratic Party that the feeling is in America that there, you know, you are going to have to sublimate your interests in order for Democrats to win because most of Americans are white. And while Democrats are going to secretly maybe work for you under the table to help you in a way that Republicans won't, you are you are like the um, bastard child of the Democratic Party. Exactly. <laughs> the bastard child without whom they couldn't win, but they can't claim you either. You're the side chick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. My issue with this, I mean, like, I, so I completely understand why black people feel that way because it has been true. Bill Clinton is like, I need you black voters, but I'm going to assist a soldier and I'm going to launch my campaign at the assass- at the um, execution of a mentally handicapped black man. And I'm going to tough on crime my way through this and cut welfare and do all these things to stay in office. At a certain point, it's like, why do I care that we have a Democratic president as a black person if he's going to come down harder on Democrats, uh, on black people than the Republicans? But that's another conversation. My pushback against you would be Eric that I don't think it has to be a trade-off. I don't think that you have to kind of like so actively or even subtly throw black people under the bus in order to win and appeal to white voters. I do think obviously in a country that's 70% white, you have to appeal to white voters. I mean, this isn't people, I say things like that. People are like, Oh, you're keeping for white people. Like, no, I'm realistic. If, if America were, Jamaica or Nigeria, I won't be having this conversation, but that's not our demographics. We're a 70% white country. You got to deal with it. So this is why I'm so fascinated by people like Heather McGee. And, Good interview, by the way. Thank you. I, I'm going to unlock that. Like that one in the Ian Henny Lopez interview, you know, both from Demos, they have the research that shows that it is not a zero-sum game. You do not have to – every black vote won is not a white lo- vote lost and vice versa. You are not. You don't have to rely on black people just like, you know, gritting their teeth through a bunch of like racist rhetoric in order to get Democrats in office. All you have to do is reframe the racial narrative from one that is kind of accusatory and one that's intended to label white people as kind of intrinsically flawed and racist. And what instead framing it, the message is, Racism is a tool that's been used by wealthy elites to divide up the working classes so that we don't unite to secure our shared economic interests. Understand. And, and so I, 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 I agree with you that she should be allowed and she should, in fact, court black votes, especially since in a primary context, she absolutely needs to prove that she's the better Democratic primary candidate because she ultimately can get the black votes that are necessary for either Tim Ryan or her to secure the ultimate nomination to secure the office. However, I think that Matt could be right insofar as one could question if she is framing her pitch to black voters in a way that is going to be also, you know, uh, you know, uh, received by white voters at the same time. And some people really don't like that. Some people are like, Oh, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to care what white people think. Mm. And like, I know that that gets you a lot of clicks on Twitter, but like, <laughs> but you I, have care what, I care what voters think. Uh, yes, you it's your to. job. She's not the president. She's not going to be senator of white, uh, of black Ohioans. She has and to care I, deeply about the welfare and the thoughts and feelings of all people in Ohio. And most of them jokers are white. <laughs> and and I guess one, I guess uh, one thing I would say, just to stop on this particular issue that could kind of bridge the two thing is, mm-hmm. is that 
if she, let's say she makes it to the general, let's say if a, a, a really progressive, whether it be a Democrat or an independent, which would be great, runs for president, you don't have to win. So sometimes I think we talk about this stuff like, and it makes it seems like we got to win the majority. We got to get majority white vote. And I think you don't have to. You can pull off 2%. Of, you can keep your 98% in black vote and your percentage in the Hispanic and on the other POCs. Well, you need more than two. I take your point, Eric, but you need more Yeah, than yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> like, but you don't need to, like... You need, like, 25%. You need yeah. 30 40%. What, what's so funny is I remember writing an article about, uh, in 2018, two Mississippi Senate seats were up. Two. Now, you mm-hmm. might be like, whoa, I know I remember hearing that. That's because the DNC completely dropped the ball, gave the candidates no money. Like, that was the opportunity to flip the Senate. They're such dingbats, but never mind. Yeah. In Mississippi, it's the blackest state in the union. You only need 12% of the white vote for a Democrat to win. Assuming you get decent turnout among black voters, you only need 12% of white voters in Mississippi. So you'll sit around all day saying, Mississippi, they're racist, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. All you need is 12%. Like one out of every six white people in Mississippi. I think you can manage that, especially given that it costs like $3 to run a primetime ad in Mississippi because the market's so inexpensive. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just to say, like, I agree with your point that, like, that broadly speaking, you can lose a lot of those white voters, but you do have to appeal to some of them. Yes. And um, the last thing I was just going to mention is this is um, goes more kind to like um, what you're talking about in the is the overall understand. Like sometimes I I was listening to a interview that Jank was doing with Ro Connor recently, mm-hmm. and it was talking about um, Mansion. Mm-hmm. And I feel like one of the issues I have with Democrats just in general, not even just talking about the progressive, mm-hmm. is even activists. There's this, I feel like, like for example, with the mansion thing, mansions, they don't understand power. And because they don't understand power, they, they, they attack things wrong. Like when Ro Connor was speaking, mansion's power comes from the fact of having a very small majority in the Senate of Democrats. Mm -hmm. So why would he do anything that would hinder that part? He does not want Democrats necessarily to win. Correct. And if they are to win, he wants that to be as slim as margin as possible Mm -hmm. because that's the only way he is effective. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that it seems like, do they understand that? I just, I like, I, I just, it, I just don't get that. And this also goes back to what you're talking about with the, the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement with the whole, the electric slide thing. It's like, do you understand that we are coming at what we want is to disrupt people's power? Why would we expect people who are empowered to give that up without some level of metaphorical blood in the street? Not literally, but metaphorical. Yeah. I think you're right when you say that they don't fundamentally uh, understand the power. Because, I mean, you saw this in the recent um, Jackson Hinkle, Sam Cedar debate, that he still is saying things like, but they couldn't actually do anything. The squad members don't actually have power. They couldn't. And Jackson, just like I did a year ago, was trying to very patiently explain they, they, they literally can't. The margins are literally so slim. This is the entire argument. I cannot believe I'm still saying this to you. 
the entire argument is this is one instance where the number of leftists that we have elected could actually affect outcomes because the margins are slim. We don't need a hundred leftists. We just needed the six. And oh my God, they literally did have power. They quite, even Chris Hedges said this to me in the interview around that time, you know, this time last year, he was like, well, ASC doesn't really have any power. And I had to push back against that. I'm like, I'm not being, you know, I'm not being like pie in the sky. I'm not saying that she should like make some big speech. And I think Americans are going to follow their knees and understanding, Oh my queen, you're correct. Let's change our politics and I'll vote for progressive. No, I'm saying literally legislatively (laughs) she has power and you are, you are giving up the game by not holding her accountable to use it. Yeah. And just before I go um, to add to that, it seems like she even showed a little bit off that power like this wasn't all her, but supposedly with the whole thing that's going on, they may be getting a vote, a chance to vote on banning stocks or some type mm-hmm. of legislation. Mm-hmm. Part of that seemed to have been because AOC understood the rules mm-hmm. of Congress so well mm-hmm. that she did something. I don't know. It's rules of Congress is confusing to me, but she, <laughs> there was something she said in motion that like almost forced Nancy Pelosi's hand. Hey, we should get Sirota on. He hasn't been on in a while to explain. Yeah. Sometimes I will say, you guys behave so badly in the comments when I have Sirota on. Sometimes oh, Sirota, I don't great. want to expose him. But I learned so much from him. And he translates so many things about what's going on legislatively for me. But I need you guys to, like, appreciate what he brings to the table. Right. And not snark. <laughs> not oh, snark not, about well, him quite so badly. Because I feel guilty exposing him to you guys sometimes. Do you know what you're going to have to do if you have him on now, right? You're going to have to say, Oscar nominated. Oh, with pleasure. I, you know, he, I I actually just need to follow up on that because he and Adam McKay are supposed to come on, but I didn't follow up. I was supposed to follow up in January. So thanks for the reminder. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you and we should do some coverage about what's been going on um, with that stock stuff. So thanks for the note. I'm going to write that down as well. You have a good one. You too. Thanks for calling. Michael, what's on your mind with this sad will smith avatar of yours <laughs> uh well that's just how i feel most of the time how are you doing brie <laughs> i'm feeling good so you're saying most of the time you just feel like a will smith's cuckold picture <laughs> yeah i just feel like well it's just like how you were just explaining the the force to vote like it feels like i i see what's wrong i have explained what's wrong why is things still broken i i don't understand but yeah, um, anyway, I actually wanted, I had a comment and a question. Sure. My comment was when, I forgot who you were talking to earlier in this call, but you guys were talking about like cancer culture and mm-hmm. like um, people going after people for seemingly indefinitely because there's no yeah, like the rules. Professor. Yeah, there's no rules on how long someone's supposed to be, quote unquote, like in the doghouse. Mm-hmm. And my comment is, I think that's becoming more and more of a phenomenon, especially in America, because the average citizen and the average person has very little power outside of context like that, where it's like, yeah. oh, somebody did something wrong. We can all band together to make their life hell. But yeah. like, if I want water, if I want like clean water in my city, there's little, there's nothing I could do. So yeah. it's just, you know, a little, little bit feels, of. It feels like that it's a particular kind of moralism. And mm-hmm. I wonder, I've been thinking a lot about this, these spiritual deficits, especially after the Marianne Williamson conversation and wondering if, that kind of righteousness 
self-righteousness has replaced any kind of more constructive moral tradition. You know, it's maybe you think it's bad to feel like high and mighty because you go to church and believe in God and do good acts, but that seems to me to be obviously better <laughs> than thinking you're high and mighty because like you are woke and understand. I mean, like I, people should obviously respect pronouns, but like understand all of the new things that older people may not get or whatever. You know, like that just seems, or, you know, I, I used the wrong black versus African, you know, like that seems to be like the, the emptiest kind of moralism as much as you want to critique any kind of religiosity. Yeah. I just feel like a lot of times when people, when like the mob goes after people, there's like very little consequence, mm. even if they do take the person down, like, especially like with Joe Rogan's like, even if Spotify rips up his contract, he's going to be fine. But like, if you point out, like, the view, I don't know if you saw this week's, uh, like, I think it was today, Breaking Points did a, a segment on the view spreading misinformation in the other direction, basically saying the vaccine is not as effective as, you know, the CDC say it is. Mm. So it's just like, are you guys going to go after the view, even though it's about the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They were basically saying the death toll was like in the low digit percentages, even though it was like less than 1%. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, as for like my question that I, I, it came to me when I was listening to the, the, um, the podcast today, I was thinking there seems to be like a fork in the road in terms of like political slash like direct action type, like directions that leftists can take because like we were talking about earlier, the um, stock ban is actually being moved forward. A lot of people think it's going to die in committee, but the fact that Nancy Pelosi even let the conversation happen means that the pressure is working. And I think the reason for that is because there was a lot of people focusing on a very specific problem. It wasn't something you could weaselly wear out of. It's not like you were saying, oh, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Now the person you're talking to can come up with their own solution to the problem you're presenting. It's basically mm-hmm. like, oh, Congress people shouldn't have stocks. It's like, there's no wiggling out of that. Mm-hmm. Versus like the Black Lives Matter movement where it's, where like there really isn't any demand. No one really knows who's in charge. Even though in the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of people are involved. A lot of people agree with it. A lot of people want to be a part of it a lot of people are giving money a lot of people are volunteering and stuff it doesn't really have a direction since it doesn't have um a point to it so yeah, that's my I, question i, I do yeah, want to just push back to say like i said in the episode there was a time in which there really was a manifesto and yes. then that just got scrubbed so that, that, yeah. that that's that's true to the sense that I don't know if it was the the global one you guys were talking about that had the manifesto or if it was an individual I thought it was global. Met. That's the thing. It was. It's always been so confusing. I remember desperately hunting down in 2016 because I, yeah, I, I was making the same arguments in 2016 about you know the need for the organization to use their demands to get concessions from whoever the Democratic nominee was. That that is true, and I do think it was a couple branches that man band together, but I don't know if it was the same global branch, the yeah, global yeah, organization. Yeah. And that I think that kind of vindicates me a little bit with the fact that because it was so big and because there wasn't really a point to it, it was easy for one person to have a manifesto and one person not to have a manifesto, and they both be under the Black Lives Matter umbrella. Yeah. So I guess my question to you is, like, seeing both of those tactics 
play out in like the last couple of years, which one do you think would be the best way to get more leftist ideas through in, in a more speedy fashion? Wait, what are the two options? So basically going down the road like they did with the stock ban, where it's basically everyone repeating the exact mm. same thing. There's only one option. This is the only thing we're talking about versus Black Lives Matter. We have 30 different things that we kind of want to do. They all affect, you know, yeah. black, uh, black Americans in, you know, some yeah. context. Yeah, no, I got you. I, I, well, there's some other, I think, meaningful differences here. One is that the accusation is that members of Congress are personally doing something inappropriate. And I think a, you always need a, you know, there's always a more pointed critique when there is a villain. And that's not to say that I don't think that there can be a villain, a, a congressional villain, villain for Black Lives Matter. It's not going to be Nancy Pelosi choked a man to death, obviously. I mean, well, <laughs> no, JK, sorry. Um, but it is going to be, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi maybe voted for something that she shouldn't have. Maybe she's taking money. I, I don't know this to be true, but, you know, maybe a congressperson is taking money from a private prison and company. Maybe they have invested in it or have voted in ways that benefit it from because of some personal ties. You know, maybe you can show that they, you know, whatever special interest, you know, there are those kinds of things that I think can similarly put um, pressure on politicians to be more responsive than they are to Black Lives Matter. And I, it is, it is not, I don't, I don't think it's just that the, the asks are too broad or diffuse. It's that nobody is willing to make the kind of personalized attack that they do when it's literally about them spending their money. And every issue isn't going to be about this Congress person's literal paycheck. So we have to figure out a way to create villains, which is why I find it so frustrating that people won't talk about Jim Clyburn taking more money from the pharmaceutical company than anybody else in Congress. Like if it were me, like I'm waiting for the day that my girl Rashida Tlaib goes on MSNBC and says, Jim Clyburn takes more money from the pharmaceutical company than anyone else in Congress, so nobody should take his endorsement seriously. That's It'll not, never happen. <laughs> It'll never happen. But, but so I, I agree with you. But I also think that you know, the 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 stock thing is kind of a slam dunk because it is so naturally personalized, and it's going to take more work to personalize other kind of things. But I agree with you that it needs to be done, and it can be done with Black Lives Matter. I, I think you can have a slogan like Black Lives Matter and also be like, Joe Biden is the architect of the crime bill. He owes this to us. You <laughs> that's, know, that's true. Those things just were not a part of the conversation in 2020. And it made me bonkers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I had a last point. What was the last point? Oh, last week you were talking about like litmus tests. Mm -hmm. I actually have two. Okay. If you are an incumbent and there is something like in Joe Biden's case, like he could just sign a piece of paper and, you know, decriminalize marijuana. And there's something you could do while you're still in office before the next election and people actually do it and you don't do it, then I'm not voting, I'm not voting for you, no matter what. Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm done. But if you are a, um, like a new up-and-comer, you haven't been in the office, the one thing I look for, and sometimes this happens, but it doesn't happen that often, especially in like local elections, is for people to criticize someone in like the local sphere. Um, like an example, I was helping with a campaign back in 2020, and a lot of people left her campaign because um, she was running for state 
not state, uh, it was uh, the House. She was running for the House, um, but the district she was running for was basically just one county. There was, mm -hmm. there, it didn't really split up. And she refused to criticize the leader of the Democratic Party for that county, even though the leader of the Democratic Party for that county was doing a whole lot of stuff to a lot of these um, people going up against incumbents. Um, because basically the way that she thought, uh, the way that the Democratic leader thought was like, well, if you don't get permission from us to run, you shouldn't be running. Mm -hmm. She made a statement just like that. And yeah, so I, mm -hmm. I, I look for people challenging incumbents to at least criticize the current setup of stuff. Yeah. You know, you don't have to like take people down or anything, but like, you know, at least criticize it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. That's I mean, I asked, I was thinking about that with Morgan, you know, I asked her. She kind of walked up to the line of being directly critical of Nancy mm -hmm. Pelosi, for instance. The reason I didn't push farther with the Nancy Pelosi point was mostly because she is not, in fact, running for the House. True, true. And, you know, I, I'm in a position where I'm a little ambivalent about saying, like, am I going to force this candidate, who, frankly, I'd like to win, to get mm -hmm. into a pointless dust up with someone who they're going to have no professional relationship with, really? You know, it mm -hmm. would be different if... You know, the question would be pointed if she was running for the House again, saying, like, if you were in the House, would you have forced the vote? You know, would you vote for Nancy Pelosi to be speaker? Would you like those? are the, That's a line of questions that would have felt appropriate. But given that she's running for Senate, you know, I did ask her those questions about Manchin and cinema and what she thinks, you know, whether she subscribes to the rotating villain theory and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I'm with you. I, I do like to hear some willingness, frankly, a lot of willingness to identify the problem creators in your own in your own party because that's where all the battle is going to be true well thanks for listening to me and uh i'll let you get to the rest of the queue thank you michael thanks for calling all right grace I'm inclined to make you the last caller oh <laughs> i know um, i see this queue I, I see you guys I, and I, and cynthia <laughs> <laughs> and carol hey carol i see you all but it is 11.09. My voice is a little scratchy. My friend who helped me come down, came down to help me move, is asleep on the sofa next to me. And I'm feeling really bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Grace, hit me. Make, let's make this good for, every, for everybody. So, bringing back to the episode today, um, I really appreciate your skills in the messaging department. And just rhetorically, what do we do now with the the phrase black lives matter, especially as it's very confusing, you know, um, with the organization. And I feel like I, at least locally, I've seen that get taken in a lot of weird directions. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, look, Again, I'm inclined to not think that these things are the slogan's fault. I don't know why. I mean, I guess I, no, I could try to I, dig I'm for why. But I think there is a branding issue, right? At the end of the day, if it turns out that the national organization has committed some wrongdoing um, and this money has been poorly appropriated and not disseminated to people in local prongs that need it, then there has to be a concerted effort to notify people of that. And I don't know that that means abandoning the slogan Black Lives Matter, but some, there needs to be some way to distinguish this organization and let people know that that organization is not where they should be giving money and what should be done. Alternatively, I mean, the money's there and it's, and there's no leader. Alternatively, the organization could reform. 
You know, it seems like nobody wants to be the leader right now. The implication sort of was that there was some legal exposure to being involved and everyone kind of fled ship. Um, I, I don't know. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Just in terms of, you know, I often hear people say, oh, the black, you know, obviously they refer, they refer to the uprisings in the summer of 2020 as the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm. Um, and you know, and then I think that that has pulled in like here, like where I live, somebody had a Facebook group that wasn't affiliated with the national organization called like Black Lives Matter Asheville. And then, you know, and then somebody in that group said, oh, well, we don't know who those protesters are. And it just like all got conflated um, because people are very confused <laughs> about like what's I'm the organization. Confused. Look, you heard me ask um, <laughs> Sean at the end of the episode, like I would love it if, if, if all they did with those millions of dollars was make a website that made it clear who I really should be giving money to. I, I would appreciate them just being a vetting service. And Sean, you know, was pushing back saying, you know, things aren't easy and you have to do the work. And I, and I hear that this is kind of the same tension I have with the just organized people. Like, I, I hope that many people do the work, but if I'm sitting here in my capacity thinking, Oh Lord, I'm not doing that work. <laughs> I can't imagine what people who are much busier and who don't divide, devote their life to politics. Maybe I'm just a trash human being. I don't know. Maybe I'm trash and everybody else is going to do the work and I'm just a lazy bum, but like, I'm just trying to be realistic about human nature and people want the button and the click. You put this subscribe button on the video because you want to make it easy for people as possible. Like, and I don't, I, I don't, I, I think you're right. Like, I, I agree with you, but I don't really know what the solution is to that because it is does seem like it's, it's going to be hard. And I, I don't want like what, what are we going to just all stop saying Black Lives Matter? We're all going to rip the post posters out <laughs> of our windows and and scrape the the bumper stickers off of our cars with, you know, Exacto knives. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure, I guess I don't, you know, I'm just coming from my perspective of what's happening in my town, but I've also throughout this was thinking about how I think that there seems to be some level of comfort among white liberals with Black Lives Matter. And at least where I live, the neighborhoods that have the most Black Lives Matter signs are white and relatively wealthy. Um, And like, you know, the folks that I know who were protesting were not slapping Black Lives Matter <laughs> signs in their yards in the middle of it while right. we were getting chased down by, you know, white supremacists. So, like, I I think and just like what's happening with the organization also as far as it's going into, you know, capitalism and all of these things, it seems like almost like that's just like a comfort space for for the, the white liberal, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. right. I mean, it's funny that the flip side of um, Sean saying, you know, Black Lives Matter couldn't be copyrighted because it's just a fact. And the, the flip side of that is that, you know, the, the, the beauty of the slogan is that it's so anodyne that if people disagree with it, then it kind of reveals their own racism or their own biases, right? But the flip side of that is that it's so anodyne that people who are not especially committed to a cause can also just accept that without it really meaning anything. Right. And it's like the very, I mean, it's like the, the bare possible minimum, (laughs) like in some ways. And I've, yeah. And I've had friends like express feelings of like not liking the slogan because of that, you know? Yeah. Um, And it can also look, it can be the case that a slogan is good for one period of time. Right. It stops being useful another period of time. And that doesn't mean everyone made a mistake in the past or that was the wrong thing to do. I mean, on some level, it's a wonderful thing 
that people felt so strongly that an organization was able to raise some $90 million in a year. Now, whether that's the right organization or they're going to do something right with the money, that it does speak to the power that that slogan had and how it resonated with people. So yeah, I definitely think the power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't want to discount like what, what it did. You know what I mean? I'm just saying looking forward, but, and I think you were talking on about like what, where people should be putting their money. And I would really suggest just looking up your town's name, mutual aid. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, let me ask you that because people, people do say that. And as I've gotten closer to some of these mutual aid folks, like, you know, um, Afini and the folks that do all, all that work over at Fred Hampton leftists and stuff like that. I, I do, I hear them say that, but also there is this concern that like, you're just throwing, like there is something a little weird, a little, a little unsteady, like disconcerting about giving to just a random human being that you have no affiliation with, you know, nothing of, I mean, when you, when, even when one gives to like very respected humanitarian organizations, there's a Google search of like, okay, how much dollar, how much, how many cents of my dollar to the Red Cross is actually going to go to whomever. And that's for like an established organization. And I do think there's something very human and natural and not entirely, but, you know, incorrect about wanting some layer of, of certainty that the people that you're giving money to are in need. You know, there, it is, it is true that there are also scams out there. And there are a lot of people who are giving money that actually don't have a ton themselves. You know, if, if I, give some $50 donation and it ends up going to nobody like, okay, whatever. But you know, when I hear people complain about giving their $7 to Bernie when it was their last $7 and him not acting right, of course those people are not going to be wanting to throw, throw money away. I don't know. Am I, am I wrong? Should I just trust anybody who says, Hey, I'm mutual, mutual aid. Give me a GoFundMe. Well, we're, I mean, we have mutual aid groups here, so you can go through the mutual aid group. Um, but I mean, nobody's take, nobody's skimming off the top. It's all going direct and they have, and they have financial transparency posts all the time. At least, at least that's how mutual aid works in my city. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like it's the only way just after experiences with nonprofits. Um, and it's also really under attack, uh, right now they're trying to destroy mutual aid, at least Dang. here, um, like they, our city, our liberal little city just made an ordinance like saying that they basically at the start of the pandemic, they started doing weekend food distributions in a local park um, to feed unhoused people or anybody who need you know, who needs a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they're trying to make it illegal to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Where and it's located, like, do you mind me asking? At Asheville, North Carolina. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's like, and that's, I mean, we know it was a direct response. The police came and like arrested people for doing this. They, they put all these like trumped up charges and charged people with felony littering. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's, it's like, and I, I mean, I would have never, until I started like getting close to this, I definitely wouldn't have thought that this was something that was happening. Um, And it's really, really insane. Um, And They've and now they've specifically made this ordinance just to target our mutual aid groups, um, and so I, that's why. And I feel like if there's that much backlash to it, then that's another sign that it's the right direction. You yeah, know, I welcome their hatred. I hear that. 
Um, well, well so, yeah, yeah. I, I will, I will, you know, I'll, I'll see what happens. Let me Google mutual aid, Washington, DC. And see, maybe, maybe my visions of like, maybe it's a lot more concretized and official, not official, it's not the right word, but, um, and if you, if you want to, is the word I'm looking for. If you want to see what they're up to here too, we have, we have two local, um, news organizations, left news organizations that popped up, which I think is awesome. We have mm-hmm. Asheville free press and there's mm-hmm. the, the Asheville blade. Um, I really appreciate the work that they're doing. Well, thank you for that, Grace. And people in North Carolina should, the Asheville Blade and the Asheville Free Press, you know, support, please support local media. We always say support independent media, but support local media because that's where the breakdown has really happened. And they're not yeah, they're bringing out like the public records request. They got the city manager saying after people got arrested in one of their encampment raids, the city manager like texted the police chief, yippee. <laughs> oh, well, um, it's something. You know, here's, but, here's to investigative reporters and thank you for, for calling in Grace and, and, get, and flagging that for us. Yeah, thanks. Oh, I have one more thing if you want to hate listen to it. Um, NPR Politics Podcast did an episode about the Biden mutual aid or about uh, student loan forgiveness. Um, oh, Grace. And Grace. I don't know if you heard it, but they're trying to say that it's going to create inflation now. And I was like, wow, you guys are really oh, <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel here. You know, I have to listen to this now. I'm sorry. <laughs> when was it? Um, I think it was today's episode. I listened to it today. So I think it was today's episode. And and I was just like, wow, how? I mean, and even Asma Khalid on it, like she almost was pushing back and being like, hmm, but like, yeah, they all just went with the narrative like $10,000 is going to all of a sudden create this huge influx of the 150 or 200 bucks a month that people don't have to pay. Oh, I see it. Well, I haven't read it or listened to it yet, but preemptively. Stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Have a good night. You too. Thank you, Grace. Everybody's still here. Thank you so much for joining the call. As always, I appreciate it. If you go ahead and follow the show, follow me as well in case I decide to start another show where all I do is sex in the city recaps. Additionally, you can obviously subscribe to Bad Faith Podcast at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. As I mentioned, Monday's episode is going to be a banger. I'm so excited about either getting a lot of new subscribers because of the quality of this conversation between two people who I disagree with politically often, but who are willing to go there in a way that I think is so interesting. Um, and of course, we put free clips at Bad Faith YouTube. We've had some nice little channel growth, but... Many people are saying, many people say we are woefully undersubscribed. So liking, sharing, and subscribing to the Bad Faith channel is also very helpful. There are a number of other great leftists that have joined up on Collins. So don't forget to go and listen to what Katie Halper and Leslie Lee and uh, Trevor Bouya and all of our friends of the pod are up to. And as always, take care of yourself and keep the faith.